Boom, what up guys? So this podcast, uh, we take it up to Protector Symposium 2.0. Keep in mind, we have a Protector Symposium every single year. It's a biannual event. It's an annual event. It's an interdisciplinary weekend. You learn from the best. We train together and it's for everybody. Protectors, professional protectors, and um, everyday people. Anyways, this is a glimpse at Protector Symposium 2.0. This was during the pandemic when we couldn't meet in person and we had to do the whole entire thing as a video cast, a live video cast. One of our most successful protector symposiums and the content's really good because we're focused on video during this one. This protector symposium library for this for this specific protector symposium is monstrous, uh, but I wanted to give you guys a glimpse of every single module from every single one of the instructors so you can kind of see who's talking about what and then obviously if you want to purchase the symposium or the entire library, at, at this point we've done like like six of them. We're, we're coming up on our sixth one, Apocalypse. Get your tickets uh, at protectorsymposium.com. Nonetheless, this is going to be a really cool podcast where you're going to get to listen to multiple instructors and get a glimpse of the type of information you have access to at the Protector Symposium. And then in the real event, we always go out to the field and we physically train after getting the lectures. But sit back, relax, and enjoy. Boom! Boom! Yo, what's going on, you guys? Byron Rogers here. And welcome to the Protector Symposium 2.0. I am so excited. Um, It's an honor to be able to bring this content to you guys. Um, In light of everything taking place, I don't believe there's there's been a more relevant time um, in the world that's really been, um, it's been more, it's been more, more kind of demanding that civilians and just the people of the world learn how to protect themselves. so that's really what the ideology, if you will, the birth of these events really came out of. It was looking at the world. I was noticing trends in American culture. I was noticing trends in our world, in our society that had a lot to do with these human threat scenarios. Um, the sophistication of these scenarios w- would vary, but there was just um, there was a number of different things that kept on happening year after year after year after year after year. I've been a private security professional since 2008, and uh, you know, I looked at certain countries like Israel, where everyone's fairly willing, capable, and prepared. If something happens, um, they move to the threat. They run towards violence, you know, and it's terrorist attack, uh, kills one, injures another, but then terrorist was dealt with by, you know, three or four people in the public. And um, I looked at those things that were taking place in those other countries and I contrasted them with uh, the outcomes of things we've seen in American culture with death counts in the double digits on multiple occasions, uh, a number of things that we will study out during my presentation. Um, And I just realized, you know what? America and the world, we really need to learn how to do something. And I think that something is we need to learn how to make good people more dangerous. Modern protection dynamics. Ladies and gentlemen, what does it take to become a protector in today's modern world? who is this conversation for? I don't know if people really realize, but um, everyone has a, like something like five basic needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, uh, but you also need to protect those things. You need to protect yourself. You need to be able to protect your loved ones. Protection is a basic need. It's 
an inalienable right, according to some, but um, this is just as important as the provisions you think you need in the face of any type of emergency, okay? This conversation is for absolutely everyone. Uh, not being able to protect yourself is, is, is a type of poverty that you cannot afford. Good to go. So, you know, listen up because this, no matter where you think you uh, are in the, in, in the world, uh, this one day while you're minding your business can pertain to you. Um, why does this matter? You know, I think a question that might approach that from a different angle is, um, where are you safe? You know, where are you safe? We've seen a number of different outcomes in, in, in like modern society where people are going to church. You know, it's like the last place in the world where you would think that you have to protect yourself. You have to protect your loved ones. The reality is uh, very often in churches, um, people are fighting for their lives nowadays. Very often you go to a concert with your friends and you're fighting for your life. You know, uh, you go to the airport, you find yourself in a fight for your life. Your kids go to school, they find themselves in a fight for their life. You go to work, everything's cool, you're just chilling. You know, it's the same people, it's the same, you know these people, it's totally cool. Hello, you might find yourself in a fight for your life. You know, as a private security professional, I have to come up with protection strategies for all of these different types of venues, and I have to study these different uh, events that have taken place, and the reality, in my opinion, is it doesn't matter if you're in a vac on vacation in Las Vegas, or you're going to your house of worship, your kids are going to school, you're going to work, you're in your neighborhood, and there's a peaceful protest that's taking place down the street, guess what? You might find yourself in the fight for your life, and your family might be there with you. So, who's this conversation for? Why does this matter? Where are you safe? My answer is something along the lines of you're safe where you can create safety. We talked a little bit about how this is relevant to everybody, but here are some secondary effects that we see of violence inside of our communities. You know, uh, a violent event takes place. The reality of life is that it doesn't stop there. There are a number of different secondary effects. There are a number of different inner psychic effects. Um, people have to deal with mental illnesses afterwards, mental health concerns, anxiety, depression. These Things contribute to uh, cancer, uh, heart disease, stroke. These are stress-centric illnesses um, that, that, that can result from the trauma of violence. Risky behavior, tobacco abuse, drug, alcohol abuse, risky uh, behavior with regards to having you know, promiscu promiscuity, unsafe sex. All of these things can lead to adverse effects within our population and adverse effects within our world. Uh, Right here, we've got some statistics from the World Health Organization that say one-fifth of uh, girls have been sexually abused. One-quarter of children have suffered physical abuse. One-third of women have experienced, at some point in their lives, physical and or sexual, uh, sexually, sexual violence by some type of partner. So, when you see that this many people are exposed to violence and are exposed to abuse, and you see the natural effects of it taking place in our world and in our reality, you know, cutting down on violence or understanding how to deal with violence um, is, I believe it becomes paramount. You know what I'm saying? So who does this affect? It affects every single one of us. I guarantee you know someone who has dealt with one of these types of situations, who's, who's, who's had to battle with something like this in their past or who will have to directly, directly 
like we all know people who have indirectly had to deal with things. You'll know someone who has directly, if not yourself, had to deal with um, uh, violence and abuse and 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 the negative outcomes around the evil that comes from what the predators of our world kind of seek to do. Why we want you to be dangerous. Why do I want you to be dangerous? Dangerous society is a polite society. Uh, instant on-scene accountability. Power to the people. More dangerous people, the harder it is to victimize us. This is what our Second Amendment is all about. Civilians are truly the first responders. Yo, someone's going to call the police. The police are going to show up. You know, maybe, depending on, you know, the social climate and what's going on uh, at the time, you know, but the reality is someone's got to call the police and then the police have to prioritize your call and your situation and your and what's going on. Then they've got to get there. Um, bad guys with uh, a bad guy with a gun will dominate until a good guy with a gun arrives. These are the reasons we want you to be dangerous. So, hey, I'm Jared Reston with uh, Reston Group Training. We're going to talk a little bit about today, just about some uh, surviving an armed encounter and just give you some firsthand experience of what I went through and what I experienced during uh, one armed encounter in particular. Just a quick background on me. I'm in law enforcement. I work for the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in Northeast Florida. I've been there since 2000, been on their SWAT team since 2004. We're a full-time SWAT team, very busy team. Jacksonville is a very violent city. It happened in 2008. I was working in an off-duty job, which means like I'm working at a mall. The mall pays us, but they also pay the city, and we just handle any law enforcement problems on that property. We got notified of a shoplifter. We uh, went after the shoplifters. One of them resisted the uh, loss prevention guys. Another one took off running. We took off after the running one. It ended in a physical fight, which then ended in a gunfight where I was hit seven times with a 45. First one entered right here through my jaw, exited out my neck, and then struck my body armor. Then I had three across my body armor, across my front plate. One entered my left thigh, just above the knee, exited out high on my, my left thigh. Uh, one in my right buttock went in, hit my hip, cracked my hip, lodged there and then a furrow that just kind of grazed my uh, right elbow. And then I was able to return fire and kill the suspect right then. Belk's loss prevention comes over the radio and says, hey, we're stopping two shoplifters exiting out of the south doors of the mall. Well, the mall security office is on the north side, so we'll, we're never going to make it. But we got on the radio, me and my partner were sitting there and said, hey, we'll bring it up on camera and we'll watch it, make sure everything goes all right. So we walk into the camera room. We have mall security bring up the south doors. You can watch a white male and a black male suspect exit the store. You see loss prevention come right behind them. They identify themselves as loss prevention. And the white male begins to physically fight them right there at the drop. So I hang up the phone with my wife. We got to go. Me and my partner take off running. By the time we make it there, the white male's already been taken into custody and they're kind of dusting them off and, and walking them back towards the store. So we get up to a loss prevention, make sure everybody's all right. And they say, yeah, everything's good. You know, we, we're good, he's in custody, but the black male also stole something we would like him apprehended. And I'm like, all right, well, where'd he go? So just give you like a frame of reference. There's an expressway, 
a large bus stop, you know, a mall parking lot, and then the front of the store. So about 70 yards away, there's this bus stop. Well, the black male separated himself from the large group that was kind of at the bus stop waiting for the bus to see what was happening with his friend. They point him out. We look at each other. We see each other. That big aha moment. He knows we see him. He takes off running. Me and my partner start to give chase at that point. The tactic that me and my partner use, because the partner that was working with me that night is also my partner on the streets. And my partner's one of those dudes who's like a big old joker, like a no-neck, barrel-chested dude, you know, can bench press Mack trucks, but has a 40-yard sprint. Like, he's like a crocodile. So, our tactic has always been, when, especially when we ride two-man or whatever, is I'll get out and run. He always just keeps us in sight, gets on the radio and calls in. As he uh, started getting towards the corner to take the right, I saw that he, his legs kind of buckled. Uh, so that lactic acid built up, and I was like, all right, I got him. I know I know this deal. So look to my partner, say, hey, I'm going to speed up and go get him. So then I take off trying to get him. My partner's still calling it in on the radio or attempting to call it in on the radio. Well, when he rounds the corner, the suspect starts walking along a sidewalk next to the building. He doesn't really know what he's doing because I can still see him through the lit because it's a glass corner of a shopping center, and I can see him. So as I'm approaching the corner, all I have is a potential uh, retail theft and resisting an officer. So two misdemeanors. So I draw my taser, come around the corner, announce to him now that he's now running from the police. He needs to stop. We need to uh, go back to the mall and we'll handle this. Well, he turns around and faces me and he puts his hands up but continues to walk backwards. And he... Uh, Never says a word to me. He just kind of looking, and, I, and I'm telling him to stop. Stop or I'm going to tase you. Stop or I'm going to tase you. And he turns and runs. So I continue to chase him. I gave him a lot more commands, stop or I'm going to tase you, than I would, than I typically do on the street. I don't know if it was because I was off duty and I was just a shoplifter. I don't know where my mind was at at that point, but I gave him way more opportunity to turn himself in than I typically do. But... We, during the foot, more foot chase, I got tired of chasing him and I wanted to put an end to it. So I put the, the red dot on his back, pressed the trigger of the taser, held it there what seemed like an eternity and nothing happened. There wasn't a pop, there wasn't a, a discharge, there wasn't the electric sound of, the, uh, of it working, the probes didn't come out. So I'm holding it on his back, waiting for it to kick in. I look down at the back of the taser the taser now has the LED readout on the back and it's just counting down. It's not doing anything, but I'm closing that gap. So at that point, I need to safe the taser, holster it, and then go hands-on with him. So key points about the taser not working, guys. Like, so I got to tell everybody this. Be prepared for any weapon system you have to fail. You should have faith in it. You should, if you, if you don't have faith in it, don't carry it. But... You should have faith in it, but be prepared for it and train for it to fail because it's not always a mechanical failure or it broke or just one of, sometimes you just don't get the desired effect out of the weapon system that you're choosing to use. Police, or I think society as a whole, we've become very equipment and technology dependent, which we need to get rid of that because 
those things are going to fail you, right? So you need to have other force options. And what I mean by other force options is not go buy more things to stick on your vest or more things to put on your belt. The force option is you because if you properly train combatives, you are devastating with your hands, your feet, your knees, your, you know, your head, your elbows. But you have to be trained in this and know what it's like, not only what it feels like to hit somebody and feel them hurt by your hits and what it's like, but also what it needs, what you know, how you feel when someone's on you and getting hit. So as I'm holding my taser on them and I squeeze the trigger, nothing's happening. And I reholster and I go hands on with them. He's wearing a black hooded zip up sweatshirt. And my plan was to grab his by his hood, pull him backwards and go to the ground with him and take him into custody on the ground. At the time I was doing a lot of uh, MMA stuff and jujitsu like on the ground and I was, I'm comfortable on the ground. But when I put my hand on him, as soon as I put my hand on his hood, he spun high with his right arm and broke my grip and then came to rest like this with his body bladed and his chin down looking at me with his hands up, which through training and doing these things, I recognized I was in a fight immediately, which helped me take it to that next level that much quicker. People who've never been in a fight don't understand what a fight is. Some people who've never been in a fight feel that you have to get punched before it's an actual fight. You're wrong. You have to read that body language. If you're bladed, hands are up, you're in. Listen, the bell is rung. You are in a ring just nobody's thrown the first punch. So best thing to do is you hit first and you hit hard as soon as you see that and you recognize those things. So when I recognize it, I got a little giddy because I like to fight. So when his hands were up, I, I reached in, I closed that gap on him real quick and I headbutted an elbow strike trying to get him to the ground. We were still going to fight. I was giving some knees to the, to his comproni on the leg, trying to get him to the ground. Well, during that altercation, he produced a 45 caliber Glock 21 from somewhere on his body. I can't say that I, I know I didn't rec see the, or recognize the signs that he was armed. I've, you know, I've chased plenty of suspects before that, plenty after I've recognized the signs like where they're holding it or doing it. I didn't process that he was even armed. I never, and I don't know where he, that the gun came from. I never saw it. I can't say I didn't see a muzzle flash. I don't know if I didn't see the muzzle flash or I saw the muzzle flash or it was me getting hit in the face with a 45 because the first round hit me right there dead center of my jaw. But when it hit me, I started falling down to my left because what happened is where I caught him, it was on top of like a retention pond, but there was no, it was a dried retention pond. It was about four feet deep, like a 25 yard circumference. So I started falling to my left and it felt like a punch. I thought he caught me, you know, with just a good punch. And as, as I was going down, I'm thinking in my head, Jared, get up, get up, get up. He caught you with a good punch. Get up, get up, get up. He got you. But as I'm falling and I'm kind of rolling down that embankment, I don't hear anything. I don't feel anything like pain wise, but I do feel with my tongue that my jaw has collapsed on top of itself 
and my teeth are laying horizontal in my mouth right now. And I was like, all right, well, that, that's not a punch. What's going on? And I look up at him, and he's standing over top of me shooting me. That was the first time I recognized that I was in a gunfight. When it kicked in my will to win, my will to win was, all right, cool, we're in a gunfight. I got some help, and it's here on my hip, and I got something for you, and I'm going to give it to you. The word win is super important when it comes to mindset. Don't think about survival. For me, survival is some shit that I'm going to have to do if like, I crash my car in the wilderness and I have to eat berries and drink my own pee and shit like that. That's survival. Gunfights are a winning event. You have to give it to them to win. Survival is just a byproduct of the win. And sometimes we might win and lose at the same time. We don't make it. But the mission one or whatever it is, like that's a, the winning mindset that you have to have. Survival is just get it out of your brain. Don't worry about surviving. Always push for the win. As I'm kind of recognizing I'm in a gunfight, shaking the cobwebs off a little bit, like I'm telling my brain to do stuff, but my hands are still kind of going slow, just like not a, not knocked out, but just they're not going full, full bore yet. Well, he started walking away from me, and every time I would move, he would shoot back at me, or shoot at me, shoot at me. Well, I kind of, or I'm laying on the ground, I'm oriented my body towards him, but the big motion of me drawing my pistol and pushing up off the ground, he saw that and started driving back on me, trying to put me down before I could get round. So... From my back, laying down, I started engaging him, strong hand only, pushing off the ground, trying to get to my feet, trying to get to that good fighting stance. I only made it to my knees, but I was trying to get to it. The key point on shooting back, I didn't wait till I was in that good fighting stance. I'm going to fight from what I got and try to fight to improve my position. Don't wait. That's time, that's things that can happen to you during that time when you're trying to get perfect. You just got to fight from what you got. And if you have good fundamentals and good skills, hopefully that will carry the day because you're not, you, you know, you'll have what it takes to win. The first thing I remember is just picking up my front sight, putting it on his, on his uh, chest in that sweatshirt and just start giving it to him. I never had a perfect sight picture but when that front sight and rear sight were kind of in the same zip code that was on his shirt, he'd get another round and he'd get another round and he'd get another round. Train to see your sights. Sights are there. They're going to help. Because people think that the human body is a big target. The human body is a big target if your goal is to shoot a body. But the kill zones on a human is actually pretty small. And what ends fights is putting people out of the fight. I saw those sights resting down on them and give it to them, give it to them, give it to them. I knew I was getting good hits, but he's still closing and he's still shooting. I had a good uh, instructor and mentor early on in my career and he told me, hey man, listen, bad guys are gonna continue to do what they were doing prior to you shooting them until they decide to give up or you put their lights out. That's it. The only change that I got out of him is he was driving straight at me 
and then he started turning a little bit to hit from my left to his my left to right I was pushing him off of me and he started to give me like a little bit of like a he was turning his back to me and shooting like this kind of like um a kid who's trying to squirt you with a squirt gun and you're trying to squirt him with a hose and he's trying to outrun that stream that's kind of what it looked like when he was shooting I never had you know people say I've seen shirts pop and you see it I don't know man in my experience guns gunfights aren't as loud as you think they're not as bloody as you think and they're not as scary as you think you just kind of resort to going training you know and you just do your thing as he's coming to me I make it to my knees and I can feel I wouldn't say pain in my left leg and my and my butt but I felt off like I, I knew that something else was like I was hit probably more than just that once and he got to me and as he's getting to me he got close enough to me that I lunged up, I grabbed him, and I pulled him to me and started falling down to my side. So as I'm grabbing him, he's, it's kind of like belly to back, his head's right here in my chest falling. And as soon as we hit the ground, I put my pistol to his head and I give him three contact shots to his head, killing him and ending the fight right there. Hey, Tony Blauer, and uh, very excited to present at the uh, Protector Symposium 2.0. So physiology of sudden violence. Hopefully you watched uh, some of the intro, maybe you did a little research on what we, what we do. And uh, the neat thing, the most fun I have whenever I do a presentation is I can go all the way to, from a, you know, a gig with some SWAT tier one military all the way down to a kid's class. And, and, and why I'm explaining that is because I don't know who's watching this. You may be a soccer mom, you may be uh, an accountant, a doctor, you may be a police officer, you may be in the executive protection field, and so on and so forth. That's fine because what I'm going to share is this kind of notion, this idea of how we can best be our own bodyguard. And it's interesting because, you, know, uh, you know, Byron's background and, and what he mostly works on focuses is the executive protection side. And when you've committed to be someone else's protector, you know, that in some ways puts you in more danger because you put yourself, you know, you're putting yourself between them and, and, and the threat. And I'm using this metaphorically and loosely because I don't tie this into one of the things that I've been telling people for, for decades now. I started teaching officially in 1979 just to give you some perspective. I've been studying violence for 41 years. And uh, I've reverse engineered a program that originally was based on traditional block-based training, uh, meaning, you know, you did your white belt, you did your yellow belt, you did your orange belt, you learned stuff, you, you got good, you got tested. And uh, I started to notice that in any fights that I got into or a fight that a student would get into, that nobody was using the complex motor skills that we were practicing. And I was a, I was a, a very introspective person. Uh, that's a fancy word for I overthink stuff. And uh, I would think, I think, why is that? Why is that? I remember this one confrontation I got into. It was uh, Road Rage before Road Rage was actually a name because it was in like 1982 or something. And uh, driving down the street, I accidentally cut somebody off. He's in my blind spot. He jumps out. He freaks out. With his, we were stopped at a light. And my window was down. It was summer. And there was a car in front of me. And I heard his brakes. I heard his tires chirp. He hit the brakes. I looked up. 
I had already done the, you know, oh, sorry, man, you know, but he's like giving me the finger and, and yelling at me in the car. And I forgot about it. We get to the light and then I hear brakes and er, the tires screech. And I look up and he's already out of his car running. And my windows are down. And this is the 80s, we're wearing seatbelts. And my instinct was just to open the door and jump out because I didn't want to get caught, you know, getting, you know, in the, in the car stuck in my seat. And I jumped out and he's running towards me. And as he's running towards me, my brain, and I've been boxing, Wing Chun, wrestling, Taekwondo. He's running like, ah, you fucker, you're coming at me like this. And I'm there going, shit. And my hands just come up as he comes flying into me. And we just collide. We just crash like demolition derby, right? And I'm grabbing him and I'm, I'm rolling him like a, across the trunk of the car. And I'm throwing like the, like the shittiest rabbit punch and he's pulling my hair. And, and at that time, you know, there were no cell phones, so nobody was filming. People actually got out of their car and started yelling at us to stop and break it up. And, you know, some people actually grabbed us. They're actually good Samaritans actually trying to stop the fight. And uh, imagine that. So times have changed. But I, when I got back in my car, my adrenaline's going and I'm like, I'm driving, I finally leave and I'm like, <sighs> and I was like, what the fuck was that? It was such a blur and such a mess because my fantasy, being a Bruce Lee junkie, uh, being a martial artist, training every day, training in different disciplines, was he'd come in and I'd do a skip sidekick or I'd throw him or whatever. And as I get into the course, what I want you to do is suspend, if you can, through self-awareness, uh, your ideal outcome in a confrontation. I want you to think more on something what I call as evidence-based self-defense. Evidence-based self-defense. And what I mean by that is when you look at uh, violent encounters, body cam, helmet cam, CCTV, smartphone, when you look at violent encounters, how often do you see anybody looking cool? And I'm talking about the good guys and the bad guys. It doesn't matter, you know, what side of the fence you're on. Nobody looks cool because when it's true violence, there's this emotional raw uh, danger and the punches aren't clean and, and technical. They're looping and they're wild and the eyes are wild and the breathing is erratic. I'm talking about sudden violence, right? So this, this preamble is to set up kind of the, the, the program and the presentation that, because if you are in your mind, if part of your brain is hijacking you saying uh, stuff like, you know, I disagree, I disagree. Like you're not really gonna absorb this because my goal is whether you're jujitsu, whether you're Taekwondo, whether you have no training, whether you're, you know, MMA fighter, whether you're cop, military, EP, doesn't matter what you are. I promise you that you'll be safer at the end of this presentation if you just open your mind to it, right? And, and so I want to revisit the evidence-based principle. Evidence-based is what you see. I, I was talking to a good friend of mine. He's been 30 years in the security field uh, out of Australia yesterday. And we were talking about palm strikes. Now I practice palm strikes. I teach my students palm strikes. And my buddy Dean Lawler says, that he's worked doors for 30 years. He's done protection for 30 years. He says he's never seen anybody use a palm strike in a street fight in 30 years. Now you might go, oh, that's not true. I saw one and someone else might be listening going, uh, I saw one once too, but listen to what we're saying. 
you know, in the 20, 30 years that you've been watching violence, how often have you seen someone go palm strike and recoil and hit the person and drop them? Something happens when we get scared and something happens when we get angry, right? So the victim of violence is scared. The indignation we feel when we get hit, we get shoved and we fight back is anger. When you're angry, what do you do? When you're angry, do you go like this and go, man, I'm so angry? Or do you go, oh, fuck, I'm so angry. And we ball up a fist. That's something that humans do, particularly guys. So what I ended up doing through a de over a decade of research in the 80s is I intuitively stumbled upon the startle flinch re reflex uh, that, that all humans have, right? And it was this idea of covering the head or pushing away danger. That was triggered by fear intuition and fear. Oh shit, right? The hands would come up. And I figured out how to weaponize that. But the most important thing that I figured out, and I need to share it with you, is this. And listen very carefully to this. The most important thing I figured out was this. The people who manage their fear manage to fight. Now, it doesn't guarantee victory, but it does ensure that they're in the fight. And, and what I realized after, you know, probably... I mean, I was always big on teaching the fear management, the mindset, and, and, and again, a natural, instinctive way to protect and move. But I didn't realize until about a decade ago how significant fear management was. At the end of the day, it is the, it is, it is, it's the single most important thing because you can be really skilled and there is, there's lots of evidence of really skilled people who don't get their gun out in time, who don't throw the punch in time, who don't zig or zag or, or block or parry, whatever you, whatever you're thinking. Why? Because fear has hijacked executive function. So we're going to touch on that a little bit in this presentation and, uh, and, and we're going to go through this. But really what we're talking about is the physiology of sudden violence and what it does to your body. We are going to talk about a few things that are related to the more unconventional side of preparation. Um, we're going to come at this from a point of view of somebody traveling to a place where they don't know a lot about the culture. They don't know a lot about the criminality there. Uh, let's say you're traveling with your family to a place where you're going to spend a few days maybe in a resort somewhere. Uh, you're going to travel somewhere where you don't know the local customs maybe. You don't know the, uh, you don't know the specifics of a threat that could be there, right? Threats come in all shapes and forms and sizes. Uh, you know, you can choke on a uh, on a piece of uh, chicken. Uh, you can be held up by a by a twelve year old with a with a rusty revolver somewhere, um, or you could be drugged at a hotel or bar uh, by a fellow American that's uh, that's uh, looking to be uh, predatory outside of his country. Right? Endemics is a word that is kind of related to virology or disease or researching diseases that uh, that are transmissible. Uh, I use them specifically for people that want to research, that want to prepare for certain things that might give them, uh, do them harm in environments uh, of an urban nature outside of the confines of their country. Um, basically, I want you to envision or imagine you are at your house uh, before a trip and you do want to have a have a small amount of time to prepare yourself to educate yourself on what the probable possible threats will be to you and your family if you travel somewhere right um 
you don't need a lot. Uh, I, I've, I've met a few people that think you have to invest in open and uh, some private uh, intelligence, uh, intel private security intelligence groups to, to share information with you about uh, things. People that rely solely on uh, you know the State Department's uh, advisory, you know, uh, as far as uh, traveling to a specific part of the uh, of the world, like a place like Mexico. Um, realistically, all these advisories will warn people from going there. They'll tell you not to go there. They'll tell you not to move at night. They'll tell you a lot of things. Uh, but the details are what's missing in a lot of these advisories. How can you get some of these details yourself? Well, we live in a day and age where you can log on to uh, things like Google. Uh, you can log on to things like Google Street View. You can go on social media platforms uh, and go into expat community forums and talk to people that are of your own nationality that live in these environments themselves. And from that, you can deconstruct and see exactly what you need to look for and what you need to be aware of in these environments if you want to keep yourself and the people that are with you safe. This is a product of a quick Google search of a city that I'm traveling to. Let's say you're traveling to northern Mexico. You travel to northern Mexico and you want to have a clearer understanding of what you might face out there or what you might uh, encounter as far as an enemy. Things to look at, things to look for. Uh, it's hard for some of us to learn a whole different language in the span of a few days. Uh, but you can do a quick Google search and learn things like derogatory terms uh, towards uh, being an American or an American. You know, derogatory terms for Americans in Mexico, gringo, güero, um, norteño, del norte, foráneo, whatever they are. You have this li these list of uh, these list of terms that you will then write down and educate your family or the group you're traveling with. Uh, if you hear this word in the environment, probably perk up your ears because there's, it's, this is a, probably an indicator. Um, you can do that simply by doing an online search, right? Uh, you could do an online search of, uh, of uh, slang words uh, for gun or knife, slang words for abduction, slang words for robbery, slang words for drugs. Uh, all these things will be indicators of things that you should kind of learn and know how they sound and they will they should be setting off alarms if you hear them in an environment. Uh, another thing that it would lead me to try and prepare or realize, and I'm not talking about going, uh, you know, Jason Bourne on these people and trying to disarm them, but if you find one of these things on the ground, if you see one of these things fire, if it's firing to you, towards your direction, how many rounds does an AK-47 hold? Ballistic-wise, does that little uh, outcropping of a, a, a stone wall that's behind the sedan provide adequate uh, cover for, uh, for, for that type of firearm? Um, can you operate one? Do you know how to load it? All of these things are, are kind of small in details. Uh, realistically, if somebody's shooting at you with this type of uh, with this type of weapon, wouldn't you want to know what the capabilities of this firearm is? Wouldn't you want to know how to load it yourself? Wouldn't you want to know uh, if this individual is actually trained in its use? Uh, all these things are things that you should kind of take into account for it when you do your endemic 
specific regional uh, study and research, and you start taking your notes, right? This is a roadside abduction situation. Now, a few things I want you to see here. single hit on the corner of the car stopping the vehicle now is the vehicle disabled or did they stop the, the realist did they stop the vehicle because the person is shocked and surprised because of the action violence of action there's a single firearm in play there a single pistol in play there is it real is it not real they took the victim in that vehicle and now he's off now he's in, in a yeah, now he's in a custody situation, surrounded by armed men that are taking him to an unknown place, right? Uh, a few things to realize about this video. Lots of witnesses, nobody reported it. That's the third world, that's Mexico. Nobody reported anything, everybody's minding their own business. Uh, don't assume you're gonna be in the first world. Don't assume you're gonna have a 911 service. Don't assume any of these things. Uh, you can travel with a lot of things. You can't travel with your concept of normal. Normal stays back at home. You can't travel with your concept of a bill of rights. That stays back at home. Outside of your country, things change. And you have to adapt to these changes. And you can start educating yourself on what these things might be or what these situations might be. Number one, takes one to know one. What I mean by that is it's hard to identify some, an activity, an individual, uh, a means, a, 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 a criminal of any of these types of criminals uh, without actually knowing one. Um, I'm not saying go out there and, and you know, befriend criminals or you know, low lives. Um, I'm, just, I'm just telling you that it's a good idea to know what motivates some people. It's a good idea to know how some people, you know, scam other people out of money. Uh, it's a good idea to learn how when you see an individual out there panhandling in a corner, realize what his scam is, you know? You see a guy outside of a Walmart with a dog next to him asking for, for money for, for, for kibble for his dog, realize that he is manipulating the, you know, the, the individuals around him into giving him money by sympathy, uh, social engineering the individuals around them uh, to you know basically scam scam them out of their money, and by the end of the day, sometimes this individual is going to go off and, and drive off in a Mercedes. You know or no? Lots of the major urban environments have people that live off panhandling, and they live a pretty good, comfortable life. They uh, are aware and they know how to manipulate some of these things in people and in individuals. Uh, when I do some some of the uh, more urban uh, movement type uh, training uh, classes out there in a the public setting, I usually have students go into panhandling exercises. Uh, basically, they go out there, and if they never asked uh, somebody for a dollar before, they're gonna they're, they they learn how to do it in a in a very you know specific and successful way. Uh, why do why would I show something like this to them? Uh, it's the best way that I've found to teach somebody or show somebody a different perspective uh, when it comes to an urban setting than, they, than the one they have already, right? Some of us have had to go th uh, through 
hard environments, harsh environments where we have to, to you know, make use of some of the, these, these types of things. And some of us haven't. Uh, if you've never had to go through any of this, if you've never had to do any of this, you are missing a piece of the puzzle or you're missing a piece of the experience of the human experience that some of these people do have. Um, why would you want to know these uh, types of things? Well, it makes you aware, you know, it makes you aware of some of the things that are in your environment. All right, here's my trigger warning, all right? My safe space warning. I got to do this. And no, I'm not making a joke. I really am about to show you a pretty violent picture right now. I'm going to show you, you know, violence and dead bodies. I'm not joking. So if you're not into this or this is too much for you, I, I tell you right now, look away. And I'm not doing this for shock value. I'm not doing this irritate people. There's valuable lessons to learn here. Every Everything you're hearing coming out of my mouth was, was paid for in blood. So this is more of that. I don't do it for no reason. So here's the picture I'm about to show you. This is a picture of the day uh, Habib the Translator decided to come up on uh, the, this base in Iraq and blow himself all over the entry control point with a suicide vest, killing all the people around him. This is the aftermath of that incident. You see a couple Army, American Army soldiers picking up the, what's left of the suicide bomber, putting them in a body bag, and those are actually what you see are Iraqi um, police at the time. All right? This is a photo of denial captured in a still frame. How can I prove that to you? How can I show you? How can I tell you every one of these people is in right in the middle of, smack dab in the middle of denial. Doesn't matter if they're American or active, they're right in denial. How can I prove that to you right now? I just explained the situation. He was a suicide bomber that showed up and blew himself up all over the place. I don't care what language they're speaking. What do you think is going through the head now, right now? What words are going through the head? Probably no way did that just happen. No way did I just see that happen. They're probably looking down at that body going, no way am I looking at this right now, right? That's a pretty crazy stuff to see. If you're not a cop or a fireman or EMS, you've probably never seen some street pizza like that. So it's very hard for our brains to look away from that, right? Here's the thing. Here's how I can prove every one of them's denial, right? This was a kind of a terrorist attack that just happened. Do these bad guys, I know they never attack with secondary and tertiary means, right? So where do you think everybody in this situation should be looking, okay? we I know they're looking down, okay? Let me ask you this about the suicide. Is there any threat there anymore? No, the threat's over. The only reason they should be looking down is if like Habib like sat back up. I'd be like, all right, that was, that was cool, bro. But no, there's no threat there anymore. They should be looking outboard, okay? I'm telling you this right now. You know the secret now. This denial phase, this little secret can keep you and the ones around you right now. You know the secret. When crazy stuff happens, I can guarantee you all the people around you are probably going to fall into denial. And you with this information need to be the leader in one of these situations. Start kicking people in the ass, grabbing by the scruff of the neck, and getting them moving. It's not going to look ugly. It's going to look ugly. It's not going to look pretty. I don't even care what it looks like. But start kicking people in the ass. Then minimum, get them, get them evacuating people. Get them uh, seeking medical attention. Get them on the phone with 911. Get them doing something. Because this is helping no one. This is just inviting and making yourself an easy target. So just that little tidbit right there. If I never give you any more in training... This, that, that, that Nile concept is going to help you be more survival because when someone doesn't tell you what to do, bad things happen, all right? Our brain is the greatest invention ever, that's ever evolved for us, but there are serious, serious limitations, especially when it comes in times of violence or fear or threat. We don't process those things that great if we're not used to them, all right? Your brain does all sorts of goofy things that it's trying to help you with, but sometimes it can hurt us. You think about channel capacity, all right? Your brain only has the ability to recall a certain amount of information at a given point. In non-stressful environments, it's about seven things. So if I said, hey, what's your phone number right now in this environment? We're not stressed out. You probably wouldn't have a, a big of a problem giving me your phone number. 
If I walk up and you say, hey, bro, what's your phone number? And I set the person next to you on fire with some gasoline, you're probably going to have an issue telling me that phone number because in times of stress, the channel capacity dumps to only recalling about three things at a given time. You only recall about three things. You don't believe me? Okay, when you're, in, when, you're in, uh, when you're on fire, what are you supposed to do? Stop, drop, and roll. When your rifle has a malfunction, what do you do? Tap, rack, bang. Uh, when you're in trouble, who do you call? 911. Probably some of you chuckleheads out there saying Ghostbusters right now. I've been listening to that crap for 10 years. Now it's 911. You go to England, it's 999. Okay, that's not a coincidence. That people understand that channel capacity. So I'm not saying not for nothing, but if you're in some, you know, wushu martial arts kung fu and they're teaching you, you know, step nine of some counter to a kick move, you're not going to remember that when violence happens. You're not going to remember that in the middle of a fight. All right. So be aware there are definitely limitations. You know, um, if you've ever been to, a, I dealt with a situation in the military a lot. Your brain has change blindness. Your brain can only pay attention to a certain amount of detail for a given time. All right. Uh, it's about 30 minutes. All right. You got about 30 minutes of attention currency. I, I like to say, uh, wrap this around your head. Let's say you get, get gifted at about a thousand dollars of attention currency. Every morning you wake up, you wake up, your brain's fresh. You get given a bundle of a thousand dollars of attention currency. Here's the thing, if you walk around and by 10 o'clock you're just spending that currency all over town and by 10 o'clock you're broke, you don't have any more of that cognitive ability to pay attention, that's it, you're broke. You're gonna miss it, all right? So be be very wary where we're spending that attention currency, okay? Uh, when we're checking IDs at military installations or anywhere, if you've ever had your ID checked, you know, you look at those people, some of those ships, those people are on eight hours, 12 hours checking IDs. That's a small, detailed, orientated thing, all right? Look at those people, Army, Marine, soldiers checking IDs 30 minutes when you roll up. If you've ever seen them, they're locking and popping, they're spit shining and eye. They look great, man. Hey, pull over there. Good morning, sir. Let me see that ID. You know, go ahead and fast forward seven hours into that shift, okay? Captain America all of a sudden turns into, you know, uh, a slob, all right? Why? It's not his fault. It's not their fault. It's just after that 30-minute mark, your brain kind of turns to mush and you can't pay attention to detail. You need a break. You need to go shake it off, take a break, go to the bathroom before you can re-engage with that observation again, okay? Because at the three, four, five, six-hour mark, if you're searching somebody on a detail, you're protecting someone, you haven't changed your vantage point, you haven't had a break, guess what? You open up that brain pan, there's like a cow with a top hat playing a freaking ukulele. There's not much happening there. So be aware of these things, all right? And most people, you might be in a protective detail or a team environment, you go, well, great, Yusuf, that's a great idea, but I'm not going to go to my boss and be like, oh, Yusuf told me I can only work for 30 minutes at a time, you know? Yeah, you're probably not going to be on that detail for very long, but if you have the ability to work in a team environment, we have other people that support us. So, hey man, you're checking IDs for the next 30 minutes, you're gonna search them and you're gonna do whatever, you're gonna search vehicles or all you gotta do is change vantage points, give someone a break and that'll that'll keep them fresh right there, all right? So all that stuff your brain does and just be aware that those fear things, they, they manifest from our, our subconscious and most people forget about them. Hair standing on end, bad gut feelings. There's the women's intuition. That's not manna from heaven. That's your limbic system processing information wicked quick, okay? But again, oftentimes we live in much more polite society right now. We want to tamp it down. We want to go, go into denial and go, oh, no, that's not what that person's saying. No, that couldn't possibly be what that person's doing, all right? If you've ever found yourself explaining away someone's actions, someone's behavior, I'm sorry to tell you, you're in, you're in a big state of denial. It happens all day, every day. I see it every time. You spot some anomalous behavior, some weird behavior or situation, and you go, huh, that's funny. 
I watched that person just do this thing. That's really odd. You might even verbally say it, and your buddy's like, what? What's it? It's like, ah, nothing, man. I just saw this person do something weird. Hmm, whatever. Here's the trouble. Most people, 99% of the population, will go from that and go, uh, that person's probably just A, B, or C. What did you just do right there? You just explained away someone's behavior. You don't know that person. They've obviously risen up on, enough on your Richter scale to cause some type of, you know, ping in your in your radar but you're going to explain away the, their behavior it's never ever 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 your job to explain someone else's behavior it's their job especially if you're in a security setting or law enforcement military it's their job to explain their way never explain that away and if you could do that thing right there you can save you from a lot of heartache all right i'm going to bash your head full of these observables this first portion we're just kind of dancing around on the dance floor i got to prep your head for before we launch off real quick but once we get into those observables you're going to see the power of filling your head full of those file folders all right you know there's a white paper that came out on this a long time ago said you know a uh, person who goes through the training you're getting right now comes out the other end this is the dod quote comes out the other end 200 percent more aware of their surroundings 200 percent that's a pretty cool number. I'm not an educated man. I thought it stopped at 100, but apparently it just keeps on going. It just keeps on going through the roof. So let's say I can't do 200. Man, I'm not that good. Let's say I can only make you 100% more aware. That's still a pretty good number, wouldn't we agree? What if I couldn't make you 100%? What if I could only make you 50% more aware than you were yesterday? Would we take that number? Hell yeah, I bet you would. Dial it all the way down. All I could do is make you 5%, 1%. All I could do is make you 1% more aware than you were uh, before you woke up yesterday. But everybody listening to this right now would love to have that 1%. First of all, everyone gets first aid. Everyone in the dwelling, whatever it is. If you have, you know, you're, you're married, you have a wife, kid, husband, whatever. Um, you have, the entire family gets first aid training. And you want it to have a continuity. There's a thing in the military called uh, TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care. They have a civilian version of it. Um, they called ECCC, and I believe it's um, um, I believe it's emergency critical casualty care or something. I you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I know it's ECCC, and it's effectively the same course taking out the the more combative nature of it um, in the sense of bullet wounds and that type of thing. But it's still a lot of the same content. It's a really great course. There are a lot of former military, uh, like special forces medics and uh, uh, SARC special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen, people like that, who are teaching medical classes because they recognize how important it is. Back to the beginning, gotta have medical training. It's gotta be continuity in the medical training if you are in a dwelling with multiple people in it. If they're old enough to go, then they need to get medical training. They need to learn first aid. You need to have the, the equipment logistically to support it. It's hugely important. Okay, all the medical skill in the world, you know, all the understanding of a tourniquet in the world with no tourniquet doesn't help you, okay? Um, you need to <clears throat> practice it. You, you, it's not, it's not, it's a perishable skill. It's not something that you're just going to do once and you're, do, you're, you're done. I, I, I took, I took a medical class. I'm good. You have to refresh yourself on it. Probably take a, a, you know, a refresher class every year or two. I would say every year, but at a minimum every two years. If it's available, take a class where you don't have to purchase a firearm and learn just a little bit about guns. Just not, not, a, not a ton, just actually have one in your hand and shoot it and get a level of understanding of it that you didn't have prior. And then look at your requirements. Where do I live? What do I have that, I, that I'm trying to protect? Obviously my family. What kind of dwelling do I live in? Do I have my own home? Do I live in an apartment building with neighbors? Um, do I have children in the house? Do I have roommates in the house that I may or may not 
be comfortable with them knowing I have a firearm or having access to a firearm. There's a lot of, a lot of questions that you're going to need to ask. My personal decision was to train my daughter, to make sure that she understood firearms, she could render them safe, she knows how to shoot, and I, I think that's it's hugely important. Denying them information to me and my choice, everyone makes their own choice with their own kids, my choice was not to deny her information but to give her a, an exceptional amount of information and to make her very competent at a young age. And so now I don't feel, um, I don't feel the, the, the concerns or the anxieties about firearms in the home because that's what I do for a living and I obviously have you know, several. Um, because she is, she is properly trained and she is safe and she actually understands what they're capable of doing because she's, she's fired them. So um, the, the, the safety piece on that is going to be very important okay, for, for kids. Now when you choose a firearm, the firearm is for the, for the most likely person that would utilize it in the family. So if, if, the, if the mom and dad are the ones that are most likely to use a firearm, then you choose something that they were, are going to be the most capable and competent with. You can, you know, you can, you can train other members to use it, but there's got to be a, the primary users of the of the firearm. It's really important. What I tell people is, if they if they do have a shotgun or they want a shotgun, for short distances, lighter shot is going to give you less over penetration through walls. The the actual shot pellets are smaller, and so they disperse more energy when they hit some sort of intermediate media, like a wall or something like that. Larger pellets, like double out buck, are larger and heavier projectiles retain more of their energy so they'll penetrate more. So with shotguns, that's important. Slugs are, as far as I'm concerned, a no-go. That's a giant, that's a 72 caliber, one ounce or one and a quarter ounce block of lead. That, that the, the penetration issues with that are huge. Going through walls and doors and all that, and it, it's not going to be um, an optimal choice. On rifles, if you look at you know, 223 or 556 caliber rifles, your standard ARs, depending on the load you use, some of them will penetrate a fair amount, and some of them will have, have less penetration than pistols, actually. And that's because of the, the weight of the bullet and the velocity. So when you start looking at these different systems, you look at shotguns, you look at pistols, you look at rifles, you look at portability, you look at storage, you look at the requirements that you have for the gun, you look at your abilities or disabilities or capabilities, you look at who's going to use them in the family. There's a whole host of different um, topics within that, little sub-elements that you're going to have to look at and say, okay, what how do I pick this out? It's not just the guy at the store says you should have this because it's the best thing ever. You need to understand firearms enough to make a decision based on your requirements. I buy a firearm because I'm taking control of my own personal security and the security of my family. In the end, I'm my own cavalry. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world today where people are dying, dialing 911 and nobody comes. That's just the nature of what's happening. We have a lot of unrest right now and it's important for you to understand that as, as a good citizen, and as a good parent, and as, as a good you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, you have to be able to take care of yourself and your own first. Don't abdicate that. So on the firearm side, training. Be proficient. Make it part of your lifestyle. It's fun. It's fun as hell. I love it. I shoot all the time. The, the key component is we're, we're, not, we're not trying to sell you who we were in another life. Okay, did some cool stuff, whatever. That's not what we're trying to sell you. What we're trying to sell you is what we learned there and why it worked and how it worked and how we applied it. Okay, the mastery of that tool in its application, that is going to be the key. The minute that you recognize that someone is trying to breach your home, you need to have a plan and that plan should be very simple and easy to execute and if there are more than one person in the home, they should all know what it is and should all be able to execute it in the same manner. Okay? The first is you need to consolidate everyone in the home.
what, whoever's in that house needs to go to one area so that you can get accountability of them and you can protect them all. Okay? So first is to consolidate. There's got to be a, a place to consolidate at. Depending on the size or the layout of your house, you may have two different options. I would prefer you know, to only have one option so everybody knows no matter what, this is where we go. I think that's, that's a, a, an easier plan to follow, but sometimes if there's a breach or an attempted breach in between two groups, you may have to go to one side or the other. So again, this is going to be dependent on a, a particularly, usually a particularly large structure and how you, how you can reconsolidate. But the key is to consolidate everyone, to get everyone together in one room, shopping store. The key there is not to have everybody running around in five different directions. If you can't keep positive control of them, if you can't see everyone in your element at once, then you can't control them. When you go into these stores, you don't, you know, they don't have to be five, you know, five inches away from you, but you've got to be able to, to visually identify everyone in your group. Security in vehicles. Once you get in a vehicle, okay, you have protection around you until you get out of the vehicle. And the vehicle has capabilities until it stops. Once it stops, you're just sitting in a metal box. Make sure that you do what we call in the military a surveillance detection route. Drive, don't drive straight to your house. Drive around the corner. Drive to another, another house, just a random house on the street. Look and see if you're being followed and then then make your, your final approach back into your home. Once you get into your home, if you are going into a garage and closing the garage behind you, you've got to make sure that when you go into a garage that no one can follow you into that garage. Okay guys, let's uh, talk about where we're at right now. We have developed a wrestling-based operating system based on pressure, posture and position. We have four basic arm positions, the underhook, the overhook, the bicep tie, and the wrist tie. The optimal way to put those together is to try and stabilize a clinch with a combination of an underhook and an arm tie. Clinch constants are to be on the inside and control his limbs at all times. Plan A is to release from the clinch by getting behind him. I showed you two ways to do that, the duck under and the arm drag. If we can't get behind him to facilitate an escape, we're gonna go for plan B. Plan B is to execute what we call a tie-up, all right? We have an inside tie-up, the split seat belt, and then an outside tie-up where we combine a wizard with an arm drag, pin those limbs and bind them together so we can free that hand up. So tie-ups are plan B. Tie-ups allow you to release your arm, tie up two of his so you can strike effectively or deploy a weapon, and that's where we're at now. So we're talking about plugging the gun in. Now, before we get into our timing rule, we're gonna look at what we need to do with the gun and kind of go back historically and look at what were known as retention shooting positions. Now, again, this historically retention shooting was done in live fire and it was learned in live fire and it was never validated against a resistive opponent. So all kinds of things came out. In the early 70s, we saw a lot of solutions where they would have you draw the gun and then rock your hips up. Usually this hand was well into the body or well out of the way of the line of fire, okay? It was very notional. Sometimes rounds hit, sometimes they didn't. Now, if we look at the problems with this just from 
what we've learned about wrestling so far. Right now, fundamentally, I'm out of posture, okay? So if Larry, nor is my hand in any kind of defensive stroke or, or protective posture or whatever. So basically, I'm wide open to get punched. You know, if, that, if I was quick enough and I just got the round off, Larry's just standing there, that may work. But if he's driving forward towards me or I'm in fight, and I'm not just drawing on Larry when he doesn't expect it, you know, uh, that's probably not going to work real well. Now, I know there have been some anecdotal cases of, of a speed rock working well, but again, there, there simply haven't been enough entangled shootings uh, to, to show what's a better practice. What we have done, though, is pressure tested this with marking cartridges and a lot of resistance and come up with what we think are the optimal positions. So um, let's, let's start with what we think is the optimal position. We advocate for what we call a thumb pectoral index. So what that means is um, when I establish grip on the gun and I'm moving the gun from the holster, whether that's an appendix carrier or a strong side, I want the gun to come to the same height every single time, okay? And we look, look at a retention shooting position, we have to look at what does that position need to accomplish? Well, if we think about where we're deploying this, I'm usually close enough to touch Larry, Larry's close enough to touch me. So the gun should be back as far as possible, okay? So the difference between a shooting position like this, I've seen this advocated almost like an old school karate reverse punch, okay? Where a guy will index the mag well, lower this. Well, a couple of problems with this. First of all, the gun is closer to him than it, it should be, okay? Uh, compared to what we advocate for, there's probably literally a foot, you know, as far as distance that the gun is pulled back away from. The other problem is this is fundamentally a weak position. This gun could be peeled right out of my hand, okay? And it's just not mechanically efficient as far as leverage, okay? Also, when we see guys who do this, that essentially offsets the gun from the body by the height of the pistol. So now what I have to do is I have to turn myself inboard to get the muzzle back on him or I have to move the gun closer to him and that causes all kinds of problems as far as consistency with where the rounds are going. So all these techniques historically again were validated on a piece of cardboard and the most non-consensual and competitive that the cardboard ever got was when a staple busted and it flapped at you in the wind. The cardboard never hit you back, it never ran you down, it never tackled you, the cardboard never grabbed your gun. So um, once we started doing this, we, we saw a lot of that stuff just, just not work. So the thumb pectoral index, let's go on to that. What I'm going to do is, when I establish grip on the gun, I'm going to flag my thumb, okay, just like so. I'm flagging my thumb, almost like I'm hitchhiking. I'm going to attach the length of my flag thumb to the side of my pectoral muscle, okay? Now, the other thing we want to do here is isolate the angle, all right? When we isolate the angle, we do that by eliminating the wrist as a variable. So what we want to do is we want to eliminate any kind of upward, downward, inboard, or outboard canting of the gun. So now when we have a neutral alignment of the hand and the forearm, via a locked wrist and we establish the thumb pectoral index, the angle of the muzzle is going to be controlled by the height of the elbow. And what I want to do is I want to retract my elbow and get it as high as I can and as far as I can. And what that does is that puts a downward angle on the muzzle, keeping those incoming rounds well away from where this hand more than likely is doing something important. Okay. 
So when I deploy a gun inside of a clinch, I could care less about getting an A-zone shot right now. What I care about is following some critical timing we're going to go over later for getting the gun out, putting rounds in him, not putting rounds in myself or sending them out in the public. And hopefully what that will do is diminish him enough where I can get out of the clinch and drive the gun and get to my sights and improve the shot placement and use the gun the way the gun was designed to be used as a distance versus a contact tool. It's not that we want to draw on a gun in a clinch. Circumstances dictate that we have to or possibly I've been crashed. Larry's come in with a gun in hand. So it's a very, very different mindset than just equal light, equal height, A zone, nipple to nipple, up to the collarbone shooting, okay? So we have to follow some different rules. So with a thumb pectoral index, we have a locked wrist, a high elbow, and a flagged thumb, and a downward angle just like so. If you'll notice, the flagged thumb, what that's gonna allow me to do is stand the gun off sufficiently and allow the slide to freely reciprocate, okay? If I let my thumb curl and this starts to roll in, this may impede the slide movement on body armor, clothing, pouches, or what have you, okay? So locked wrist, high elbow, flag thumb. If you're doing this position correctly, you should feel a thick knotted ball of muscle back here in your trapezius and your scapula. That's a good kinesthetic register that lets you know I've got the proper angle. Don't make it, don't abate that tension by dropping your elbow and raising these rounds up more than likely into where this hand is doing its good work, all right? So key elements on the thumb pectoral index, which I believe is the optimal position to shoot from within an entanglement. Locked wrist, high elbow, flat thumb, just like so. Just like so, all right? So the next thing we're gonna do is we're gonna develop this safely in live fire because there is a right way and a wrong way to learn how to do this. And that's the next segment. Boom, quick shout out to our sponsor, Staccato. My first pistol sponsor, um, I've been sponsored by a lot of companies, right, over the years. But when it comes to pistol, that's my bread and butter. Pistol is something I believe in. You know, I'm a competitive shooter. You know, we're shooting anywhere from, you know, 800 rounds a month type of thing, right? So Staccato being what I believe is one of, if not the most complete handguns you can put in your hand. Um, it's got every component that a handgun could have, should have. Uh, they're actually extremely dependable now that they've made some changes. And these things are straight up tack drivers. If you're looking for a pistol that will do as much of the work for you as a piece of hardware can, obviously you have to have the, the, the marksmanship and all the different things, but different guns perform at different levels. And I want to say that Staccato is one of by far, for sure, take it from a competitive shooter, we're shooting the highest volumes of rounds constantly right now, not used to have a background guy, but like right now, when you go shoot, you're gonna see certain brands. Staccato is one of, if not the highest performing firearm that is both CCW, duty ready, and also competitive ready. So I wanna give them a shout out if you guys are looking for a good handgun to build your skills on top of, go check out Staccato, much love and respect. Boom. Yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I want to encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. 
Uh, you'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, that helps. That helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast out.